It's not un, um, unusual, of course, in our culture and the kind of environment in which we live, in which certain themes and topics begin to have an importance to us. And it's certainly generated by the quality and the kind of contact and communications which we have. And quite often the areas of uh, interest and focus get reflected in the literature, in the media, in the, the buzz themes of the time. And within the whole fabric of human contact and human communication, one which is often being addressed and readdressed is the area of commitment, what is commitment. And generally when we find ourselves reflecting on the character, the nature of commitment, we're thinking of, about our interaction with either another or others that we know and have some form and, and kind of relationship with. Or we may, in our relationship to commitment, think or refer to something which we trust in, we, we believe in, and we express a, a, a commitment, we would call it, to that. And that commitment is some demonstration and expression of uh, a connection that's inside of us, which we make with something, so to speak, outside of us or someone, or some place, or environment, or activity, or relationship. And whatever you and I have some sustained and associated connection with, and therefore we will think in terms of commitment to, in that relationship which takes place, that becomes a form of consideration of what and who we are and what we are connected to. So in experience, the feeling, the, the thoughts, the discussion of commitment, it's a relationship which has some continuity in time, formed with oneself, with something, so to speak, uh, uh, outside of oneself. Or, and these commitments matter to us in the movement of our life. But, of course, with the relationship, with the area of commitment that takes place, it's not so clean, so pure, uh, as we might think at the very beginning of sustained commitment. And one has that, and some of one, some of here will know all too well, when one thinks of marriage and uh, relationship, when one thinks of a particular work activity or, or a commitment to a particular field of interest, spiritual practice or whatever, that to think and to imagine and believe as can take place at the beginning of any commitment, that that feeling and that association and the quality of it is sustainable in an unbroken line through time is wishful thinking gone to the extreme. 
So one is giving consideration in commitment to not only what the inner associations, feelings, perceptions and thoughts are, but it doesn't just end with that, but it also is what the object of interest is, whether one puts it Dharma practice or her or him or it or whatever. And in the very course of time, the influence are coming from inside the influences and perceptions are coming from the outside and therefore the values, the judgments, the associations and the quality of the commitment will easily rise and fall with it. And that which we didn't see at the very beginning of the commitment, we might begin to see, experience and know about a week later, a month later, a decade later, years later, or whatever. And so one finds oneself in that continuity of time called commitment, having to face, having to be extremely clear about the internal influences which affect the commitment and the object of interest. And now that affects the commitment as well. What is coming back to one? And I include spiritual practice, the religious life, the people that one, or person that one associates with. Teachings, Dharma teachings, have gone into this with, uh, I think, from the Buddha, a lot of depth and insight. And he speaks of, in that association which takes place, calling it commitment for the moment, that the tendency of us all, regardless, enlightened, unenlightened, as we might be, that the tendency is that we focus on the general. We call it spiritual practice. We call it um, my partner or my job or whatever. And we also will focus on the particular. And in the focusing on the general, the tendency will be to have a general overall picture of him, her, it or whatever. And the tendency will be to select and isolate from the general picture particulars. The particulars in Dharma language, in the Pali language, is called the nimitta. It's the signals, the sign, some aspects of what we perce perceive about. And we'll select those. And we'll select those and we'll take them into our mind. We'll take them into our heart and it will produce some response to, some thoughts about, some feelings about, some views about. When those thoughts and feelings about get invested with one's own inner life and, and built upon, it's called projection. It's called papancha. That means it's the tendency to invest in the detail and start building another kind of picture into the story, into the original picture. And as that builds up, that picture, correspondingly, what can build up is what goes on inside of one's heart and mind at the same time. And we start to build a new picture of that person. Based on what? Based on particular. Picking out this, picking out that, and we form a new image. And thus we can move from that 
or, or spiritual practice or whatever the object of interest is from great love, so-called, great appreciation, great liking for, great interest in, and then the gradual drawing on some particulars, the relationship to it, or feeding into it, adding more to it, which is called papancha and the uh, tradition, that projection upon, and we build up a whole new picture of life. And the deception of it all is, we think we're seeing the truth. We're convinced of it. The emotion says, that's the truth of her, him, it. And that becomes our world. And when that world is being shaken for us, what's being shaken? <laughs> the commitment. Has to be. The commitment gets shaken up, and we're not sure, do I want continuity or discontinuity? And some of you have been sitting in this hall for a week on the theme of commitment, continuity and discontinuity. And when there's some agitation, whatever it, it's about, it must, in the dualism, create a dreadful dilemma. And the dilemma is, can be, it's either all because of that, the spiritual practice isn't working, she, he is hopeless. <laughs> the, the job or whatever. Or all of that and more besides. So either the attention goes to the object and says it's all there, or it's with the original movement that's inside of oneself, and one says, well, it's all me. It's my stuff. It's my issues, it's my problem, it's my suffering, it's my doubt, it's my lack of commitment, or whatever. So when there's movement, object and subject, and it's being shaken around, the commitment, which is the link that goes with it, gets shaken around, invisible link, and one doesn't know whether one is on foot or horseback. And one is actually on the cushion. So this... Agitation, which becomes one of the primary social points of existence, talking points of existence, then builds and builds, and naturally enough, there's confusion and doubt, and one can be sincerely unsure where the issue is. Is it me? Is it that? human or, or ideological or whatever, is it me, is it that, is it both, or is it neither, and there ain't no other way. <laughs> it's either me, that, that meaning, including him, her, both, or neither. And if you can find a fifth, then God bless you. <laughs> and so the mind can swirl in all of this, in trying to find some clarity there and to find out in the clarity is there commitment or isn't there? No easy task. One hears on um, retreats ad nauseum in places like this the area of um, change of impermanence, of 
the comings and goings of things, and including in that, of course, uh, commitment. And various factors, self, other, both, neither, can have a dramatic effect and impact on the nature of any kind of relationship or commitment. So much so that the commitment can disappear because it requires cooperation. One person steps out, commitment changes dramatically for both, obviously. So in the relationship of uh, commitment and the connection that goes with it, in the kind of world that you and I live in, commitment has no assurance of continuity. And one hears and is told in Dharma teachings, which has made us unusually so in the entire religious tradition, a spiritual point about impermanence. It's a spiritual point because life is deeply religious in its depth. And one feature of life is the change, the comings and goings, the fluctuations, the waves and rise and falls of existence, of change, of impermanence. And that presentation of life, shall we call it, of impermanence, needs to be understood so well and clearly with us from each moment that we live from one day to the next, so clearly that there needs for us to be an effortless understanding that whatever we take for granted today, we cannot take for granted tomorrow, no matter what the commitment is. When we speak with... uh, interest and concern about the significance of the here and here and now and what is being experienced and offered to us. In a way, it's a very direct reminder to us of our various commitments in life, no matter how safe and secure they might be. Just because of that experience today gives no assurance for tomorrow and we must be as clear as we can about that. And if we're extremely clear about that, it might generate from us a little bit more depth of sensitivity, a little bit more kindness, a little bit more more understanding about the way of life that you and I live. And if we don't, and we assume continuity as though it's some God-given right because one has made a commitment. And then something happens and it changes. And we're carrying the notion of continuity. We suffer. We suffer. And sometimes it seems like in the very nature of life, in the noble truth of life, that it needs sometimes... For us to suffer, which should be the very first signal to us that I need to stop and look at what's happening. Suffering is a, is a kind of almost, I don't want to put it into metaphysical terms, almost a kind of strategy in nature to get us to look at life and at ourselves because without the suffering we would just go on madly. <laughs> in the lunatic style of of living. 
And so as a kind of almost self-protective way, <laughs> suffering stops us in our tracks. But so easily and so often, e easily and frequently, we suffer and we suffer. And then, as the teachings of the Buddha pointed out, that movement of feelings and thoughts and projection, that papancha, the word in the Pali, gets embedded more and more into the suffering. And then one starts thinking about, why am I suffering? Why am I like this? Why do I do this to myself? Why do I create my own, own and suffering? And then one's got a little spiritual knowledge. Who's creating the suffering in the first place? Who am I? Who am I? <laughs> and it's impacting on and on. And one is just putting wood on the fire in the form of thoughts and feelings and thinking the fire should be going out. <laughs> Sometimes we have no idea what's happening for us from the original spirit and connection of the commitment. For commitment, it needs clarity and wisdom. Sometimes in commitment in, in the interpersonal uh, world of relationship, I had uh, recently a, a meeting with um, uh, one person um, in England, and he uh, said to me that he was uh, been with his partner for uh, some time, and then there was discussion about uh, getting um, um, married and making those. Uh, kind of steps and as a statement of uh, uh, commitment and uh, they said to him as I also actually said to somebody upstairs uh, um, earlier earlier today that um, never having been um, married if I may say and never having made such a commitment I probably wasn't the best person to speak about things <laughs> so um, I suggested the person go and talk with Sharda she has more experience <laughs> <laughs> oh, <Lord. laughs> so, I won't tell you how much experience. <laughs> so, <laughs> so sometimes the demonstration, in this case of uh, commitment, can be through form, and one form can be um, marriage. When we're talking in interpersonal, in that form. There can be more interest, more focus, more energy, more wish for from one than from the other. And that kind of wishing to force an agreement, kindly but force, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not usually you know, at gunpoint, but it's <laughs> not, not far off that. So, there can be that wish for that. But the other person is clearly putting out signals of uncertainty for all sorts of reasons, historical and contemporary, etc. <laughs> I don't know why I'm talking about this. There's obviously so much experience in this whole of this. <laughs> so, in that... The pressure from one 
can increase subtly or grossly, which then generates for the other greater ambivalence, greater uncertainty there. And my only response and comment to that, I think commitment is something which two people or a group of people or whatever the interest or focus is have to grow into. It's a certain kind of evolution that takes place. And I think it's more important for us to think of commitment as a growth and a development of healthy and unwholesome relationships to, whether person or themes or whatever, than to think of it as a contract, as an agreement, as something that we ought to do because mummy and daddy says so, or whoever it might be. And, and when there's a, a natural development and growth into there, freely, spaciously, easily and affectionately, without any pressure, I think there's a greater quality and possibility, not always, of course, but a possibility of something being steady, because we know that when we have entered into commitment and there's been so many whispers inside of oneself of doubt about it, whether valid or invalid doubt, it doesn't matter, and we've actually entered into it, sometimes the recoil later on in life can be strong and dramatic and terribly hurtful and painful for the other person who had thought and had assumed that the marriage contract was an evolution of the heart instead of a legal document. So in a relationship to affection and heartfulness there, the teachings of being here and now, the teachings of trust, of spiritual practice, of awareness, of watching the, the mind play obviously a significant role and part to play in a relationship which is as much a practice with anything or anyone as it is sitting on the cushion here. And to make a distinction is really to brutalise spiritual life, to reduce it down to the cushion when we're talking about forms of commitment. One of them is, of course, meditation and awareness, but it, commitment is commitment, liberation is liberation, and we can find it, on, obviously, on the cushion, off the cushion, in relationship, out of relationship, what, with whatever. Sometimes in other areas of commitment, and one person in one of the small groups um, brought it up today and I thought it was an important uh, awareness and insight, that though there may be some uh, unsettledness and rockiness, rockiness at times in commitment, heartfulness is in place there, uh, determination is uh, uh, in, in place, then that determination which takes place the quality of which can vary, I'm just moving on to other themes now, quality of which can vary quite considerably. What I mean here, mean here is, you take up a new area of interest in your life and there is a determination there to follow it through. One needs not only cooperation of others and environment, but also and equally one needs those inner resources the deeper that we have gone in life, the easier it is to sustain determination. Those who have gone deep can have that quiet determination to explore and keep focused 
on things which are meaningful and valuable and uh, creative and compassionate in life because one's gone deep. And in that depth of determination, whatever that sh may show itself, it can help a person to pass through difficult periods because the general sense is of staying steady with and through something. But if one is engaged, and some of you know from meditation life, from three months retreats here, from uh, hardcore spiritual practices here or elsewhere, and all the immense challenge to body and mind that it, it brings, because it does ch challenge everything to the very basis of our consciousness, that in that action and in that engagement of, of doing that, if the determination is strong, it will invite doubt, as a person referred to in a small group today. To imagine that one could be very determined and, and continuous in something, in an unbroken way, and not experience doubt, is too much to ask of the mind. And whatever in life you and I have thrown our energy into, and put it into, and sustained it, and kept focus with it for X period of time, there will be, honest, honest with ourselves, there will be doubt about it. Doubt because one of the often questions is, I'm putting so much into it, whatever it might be, is it actually providing that which I'm putting into it? Is something coming out of it which makes it worthwhile? So sometimes the doubt which arises is because of the attachment or the interest in results. To actually expect a person to come on a retreat, short or long term, and have absolutely no interest in any result whatsoever, <laughs> would be rare. <laughs> so in the movement of the determination that we enter into, and therefore the various intentions, aware of them or not, the actions which take place, the effects, the results which, which come through that, which reflects commitment and determination, at times doubt will come. And the doubt will shake up the view, will question the action, will want to look at well, what's the result, what's the effect which is coming to me from all, all, all of this. But the doubt has a relationship to the determination, to the effort, to the willpower, to the striving, to what's going out of oneself, and the doubt has, is related to all of that. And so we become sometimes in a conflict or a confusion about ourselves and our existence, about, well, if I don't put out determination, then how am I going to be? If I put out determination, at times, strongly or weakly, according to the conditioning, I'll invite doubt to come in. What way can we respond and handle these situations with wisdom? To know oneself well enough that I move the mind in one way, I must invite something else to go with it.
Just a few months ago, I'll give you a personal example of this. Just a few months ago, in one of my more um, um, rash moments, I, um, and there are a number of them, and in this one was at a Guy House committee meeting. I am the, uh, on the Guy House uh, committee, uh, co-founder of our retreat uh, house in Devon, in the southwest of England. <coughs> and like with um, IMS here, the, the world of spiritual life and uh, exploration uh, continues, the interest continues to expand and grow, and sometimes there are numbers of people who are, are unable to get on the retreat because the retreats are full, as with many retreats here at IMS, and a number of them also at Gaia House. So we started planning to um, build um, onto the uh, facility at Gaia House, and in that we thought of ways of fundraising there. And a number of initiatives and a brochure was uh, uh, put together and, uh, and, it, and ideas for that uh, were coming, coming about. And in the midst of this, I said, oh, um, I could run um, a marathon for a fund fundraiser. And then, to my immense disappointment, they said, great idea. <laughs> you know, it's a kind of relay of death wish for, I think. <laughs> so, to, um, I actually, I could throw a little fault on this, on um, Larry Rosenberg at Cambridge Insight Meditation Centre, because um, when I first came to... Uh, IMS in 1977 and was giving um, teachings then, I had mentioned to him that in the previous years, that is from 70 to 76 when I was a, a Buddhist monk in Asia, we had this monstrosity of 227 rules to observe and one of them was thou shalt not run. And <laughs> Um, it was considered unsightly and ungainly for monks to be sprinting with their <laughs> robes swirling around their waist. <laughs> and it is. So, um, so I had mentioned that you know, doing, doing retreats is, uh, can be a little uh, tiring, that yoga uh, wasn't, uh, was very supple, brings a lot of uh, suppleness, but uh, a little bit more stamina. And he then took me off to the, um, at the end of the retreat, to the New Balance Shoe Factory um, in Boston and gave me my first pair of running shoes. And from that, I uh, became uh, keen and in running. But I'd never run more than 10, 12 miles that, uh, be before, and that was one, in one um, crazy moment. And... <laughs> So we started this, mar started this marathon training. I don't want to r ramble on all night about it, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I probably will. <laughs> but please go to the toilet if you wish. And, uh, <laughs> and while, in the, while starting this uh, um, running, uh, running training and the determination and the uh, effort that uh, goes uh, with it, as some of you know who put some energy out into something, that what it uh, tends to do, that, that there's these uh, periods of 
free, free flow, and then there's the effort and the striving. And quite regularly, in comes the doubt. <laughs> in fact, it's also regular. It's basically daily. And, um, and it's in the form of, what on earth am I doing this for? <laughs> and somebody actually at Guy House sent in um, $150 for me not to run this particular... <laughs> which <laughs> is probably the most generous expression of compassion I ever had in my life. <laughs> so some of you will have, may have seen between 6 and 30 or whatever the un, un, unsightly um, sight of, of, of me with great reluctance opening the front door and going for a run round the, the loop and... Some people are made, I noticed, made to be runners. And we keep hearing it's mind over matter and mind over body. And meditation helps with that. Stamina it helps with that. But there, there's also what one is born with. <laughs> and with my skinny uh, legs, it's, uh, it's quite something to, to do this long-distance running. And the legs are so skinny, I've, I was born like it. You could actually fold them up put them in a matchbox and you'd still have space. <laughs> so in, in, in spite of these um, physical handicaps, I'm, I've been running around the loop there quite, quite uh, reg regularly there. And the final advertisement for this is that I run in the Berlin Marathon on September the 24th. And the reason I'm running there is because I made great effort to find out which is the flattest marathon... <laughs> <laughs> I, I ran a six in training in May I ran a six mile race um, ba basically I only saw the heels of the other runners and in Devon I'd, I've done absolutely everything to make sure I run on the flat and we turned this corner and there was this hill and the thought that rose in my mind God it's Everest <laughs> <laughs> So this is the life of the long-distance runner, and etc. So there's the interest, there's the focus, there's the, the determination, there's the, the, the hope and the prayer that the, the body will uh, hold up, and there's the regular um, arising of the, the doubt, which comes in and goes out and pops in and pops out, and one learns to live with that as, as much as with the whole process of things. And I just uh, use it as an, an example example there. But then the question must arise in some situations, of course, whether it's running or relationship or whatever, do we listen to the determination or to the doubt? Do we listen to the determination or to the doubt? And that itself, in a life of commitment, whatever it might be, is such that the doubt can arise and with the doubt and its, its uh, arising, which is there, it can come sometimes in intensely strong waves. And one needs wisdom again and discernment about how do I deal with doubt when it's juxtaposed to a commitment? Where, which voice do I listen to? And we often hear, and we say in here, you know, listen within, you know, listen within, and that we say it mantra-like. But what happens when one is listening within and one's got two voices? 
equally determined to have their say, equally sure of themselves, and saying precisely the opposite. And both coming from the same place inside, and one says yes and one says no. One says, yes, I must continue and go on, and the other one says, stop, let's get the hell out of here. And two voices are there, and one is still using the language, if not the rhetoric, of listen within. Please, you're not looking to me for an answer for this. So, so there's the inner listening which is going on. Sometimes it's very clear, but sometimes it isn't. And part of the difficulty when one is a bit polarized uh, in, in that way is that the strength of the emotion, the intensity of the thought, may not be of great help. And perhaps we've all experienced situations in our life where there is commitment and where there is doubt, there's an explosion of doubt that goes on in what we are connected with or whatever, including the relationship to ourselves and great doubt about ourselves. It comes in a huge wave, verisophus, a tremendous amount of thinking which is taking, taking place. We're absolutely convinced that's what we've got to do. We go to sleep if we're lucky, we wake up the following morning and it's all changed once again and one says, well, that was yesterday and today I'm feeling different about it, him, her, that, this, myself, whatever. Where does one listen? And sometimes that listening to equal voices, in fact, the perception of listening, since it carries interest, since it carries desire for result, for clarification, and other wishes, will feed onto the doubt, or the commitment, or both, and not enable us to resolve it. And it's a kind of limp-along situation. And the limp-along is unpleasant, and unhealthy, and unhappy for ourselves, and equally for who or what it affects. So the intimations which come from the inner life may not necessarily be the, re the place to listen to. It's as though, not easy this, but it's as though the kind of listening has got to go, start going, in this case, out of the heart and mind. Many forms of religious language, of course, for all, all, all of this. It's as though sometimes... We need to forget, I referred to this earlier in the retreat, forget ourselves and the whole problem of the situation. Because we keep feeding it with the doubt and we keep feeding it with the notions of commitment. The papancha keeps building onto it. And one small gesture from around us, him, her, this, that or whatever, equally can affect us. And so we're in this kind of vibration of unsettledness heart wants to know what to do but can't know what to do because there's too much activity subtly and grossly so though we've got to forget our existence forget it it's not worth the nightmare and the hassle of going backwards and forwards backwards and forwards and some people go backwards and forwards on some area of commitment for their existence year in, year out Decade in, decade out, still mashing, mashing over the same old thing, trying to listen to what needs to be done. And I say sometimes 
to forget the mind, forget the feelings, forget the thought, forget the projection, forget the, forget the issue, start listening elsewhere. Listening to the wind, listening to the trees, listening to the earth, listening to the vibration of life, listening to the, the, the silence of the night, listening to the stars and to the earth. Some other listening. So in that other listening, we take the energy off that, we put it somewhere else, and it's an act of faith and trust that perhaps giving up on finding a solution to a, a dilemma, to a conflict, to an unresolved problem, and listening outside of it, perhaps, perhaps, if we're blessed, if the grace is there, perhaps we'll actually shift something. And the, and the focus and the energy and the clarity and the, and the purposefulness can come out of us because we've taken the pressure off. What commitment in life could ever possibly be worth making a conflict out of? What's gone on that's entered into it? So therefore I say, listening within, yes, but listening out of it as well. And finding ways in life to be receptive so that our life isn't just embroiled in commitment and the relationship to it. Whatever it is. I'm talking spiritually here, I'm talking interpersonally, I'm talking... Uh, work and service, all the themes that you and I may have in mind as you listen to what I say. So that we genuinely understand that commitment is something which arises in the moment of the contact. When you and I are not meditating, when you and I are not engaged in overtly spiritual things, when you and I are not with the partner, when you and I are not with the job or the work or with the children or whatever our focus of our commitment uh, is in life, let's be utterly clear, the commitment in that time, in that moment, simply does not exist. That commitment arises in time, in situations, and to keep it crystal clear for ourselves about that. With all the respects and the care, etc., that must accompany that. But one knows the arising and the fall of commitment. When you are here, your relationships outside of here, and all of that isn't, isn't significant. The roles and identities I spoke about yesterday isn't significant. And there are plenty of times in our existence, where commitment has no relevance whatsoever, has no meaning for life, no purpose for life, no function for life, has no relevance at all. And in spontaneous expressions of uh, awareness, of interconnectedness, of beauty, of, of, of love, of being touched by the awesomeness of it all, uh, by the the dimensions of spiritual experiences, by the receptivity to the wonders and mysteries of life. There's, commitment is not involved in any of that. It's that spontaneous arising and events which take, take place and to be receptive to those and to be touched by those. And all of that beautiful aspect of life 
can help to reveal and enable us to work with areas of commitment. And to be very watchful, very watchful of putting pressure on another person for commitment. The backlash on that can be severe further down the line. So instead of it being some contractual agreement that takes place, let it be an evolution of the spirit. All that, I say, belongs to spiritual practice that we know where commitments are, how they are, when there's the extra dimension of effort and determination, then the doubt and other factors can arise there, all because of the way that we perceive that which we are committed to. But if we look into, explore all of this, then we can genuinely live a free and expansive life and accommodate the totality of our experience. The whole realm of movement, thought, its interaction, we accommodate it all. So that our mind isn't the centre of the universe. And therefore our existence isn't. May all beings live with clarity. May all beings listen expansively. May all beings live with wisdom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.